Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. What's up, guys? Welcome to today's podcast. Don't forget to join us over on Facebook to get involved in the discussion and also see when I post these podcasts. All you have to do is search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Put in a request to join and I can accept you and then you can get access to all of that information. The other thing is this podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are really cool, healthy, natural, home-cooked dog food that is delivered straight to you. It's perfectly portioned. You can tell them if your dog has any allergies or anything like that. It's just a great dog food, to be honest with you. It's great for dogs that are fussy eaters or have sensitive stomachs. It's one of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food, so that's hugely impressive. Our dogs love it. Highly recommend that you check it out. And the great thing is, for listeners of the podcast, they've given you a gigantic discount. It's 75% off your first order. So all you need to do to get that is go to buttonupbox.com slash nickbenger. That'll automatically apply that code for you and you can get 75% off, which is just a complete no-brainer. Try it out, see what you think. Um, I've got no doubt your dog's going to love it because our dogs have uh, certainly enjoyed it. Even Pablo, who's a very fussy eater. Um, so yeah, give that a shot. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Owings. Sarah is a speaker at Clicker Expo. She's also a Karen Pryor Academy faculty member, and she completes regularly in the sport of nose work at an elite level. She is an instructor for CyberDog Online. She's written for Clean Run Magazine on cues and stimulus control. And just kind of a quick note as well, we intended to discuss choice in this episode. And we did, hugely. We got really deep on choice. But the first 20 minutes or so is us discussing building engagement. So if you've come here just for choice, then skip about 20 minutes in. But you are going to miss a hell of a lot of cool ideas that Sarah put forward about engagement too. So know that you're missing out on that. I suggest you just listen to it all because anytime Sarah talks on any topic, it's always fascinating and there's always a lot to think about. So let's get into it. Hi Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi Nick. How did you how did you get started in training because I know that the way that you got started seems to have really influenced your philosophy towards dogs in quite a unique way and I think you have a lot of unique insights related to that. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could share that with us a bit. Yes, definitely. Well, like most of the trainers I know and most of the trainers that have influenced me, my journey began with a challenging dog. So back before I was deeply involved in animal training to the level that I am now, uh, I was actually a kindergarten teacher and an educator. So I was deeply immersed in progressive education, which also has fueled a lot of my thinking on training as well. But in the middle of all that time as an educator, I found a little brown puppy that, of course, turned out to have a whole suite of difficulties, uh, fear of the environment, uh, very intense aggression toward dogs, the usual things. And, of course, 
at that time, the best information that I had really was what was on TV, right? Um, so we tried what was on TV. <laughs> and immediately, not only did we feel horrible doing it, we immediately saw all the problems get worse. Like the fear increased, the aggression increased. So uh, um, definitely, as I mentioned on the, the podcast with Ryan, you know, the first thought that came to my mind was there has to be a better way than this. And if you talk to a lot of trainers, uh, really diverse trainers like Steve White, who trained military dogs, you know, totally different from me, a kindergarten teacher, and we have this military dog trainer. He had the same moment in his career where he went, there has to be a better way. We, this is not, not only is it hard on the animals emotionally, it's dangerous because like Steve got bitten severely uh, because of these forced downs that he was doing. Um, it also is actually not that effective because if your goal is to reduce fear and aggression and you're, you're doing it combatively, right? It's, it's, it makes perfect sense to me that it just is not, not going to work that well. So as soon as I asked that question, it just became a quest, you know, a quest of learning. Um, luckily I did end up hiring some, some good positive reinforcement trainers and they kind of said, read these books and I read those books, and then I read the bibliographies in those books, and those led <laughs> me to new books. And then, um, very long story short, one of the you know pivotal books I read was Click to Calm by Emma Parsons, and she was Clicker Expo faculty. So I was reading that book, and I saw that she was speaking at Clicker Expo, and so I thought I would go and listen to her talk, and that was the first time I encountered clicker training. So up until that point, all I had been doing was trying to fix my dog. I just wanted to fix her and have her be the super sociable, perfect dog that I could take everywhere. And when I got to clicker expo, I suddenly just exploded in my mind how profound this stuff is. I mean, it was just a little taste of it, but Watching dogs offer behavior voluntarily uh, without any type of pressure, without lures, without pressure on their bums or their collars, um, just freely offered behavior. I had never seen it um, mm -hmm. in my life. So that's kind of where – and then my next thing was instead of there has to be a better way or how can I fix my dog, I was basically driven to I have to learn this. Like, I just have to learn this. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then that led me to uh, Karen Pryor Academy, where I got a very good education in clicker training and cueing and fluency and all that. Uh, and then that just sort of developed from there. So, I mean, it deepened. One of the yeah, go ahead. One of the things that I think is unique about your story, though, because like we were saying before we even got started, like it seems like so many people have had the same story of having the problem dog mm -hmm. and maybe doing things wrong and then coming around to maybe a more of a reward-based approach. And that is my story as well. But what I think is unique about your story is that your dog has a very low frustration tolerance. Am I right in thinking that? Well, I have two dogs. So the one in the story, the little brown puppy, uh -huh. she had a tendency towards shutting down. So she was actually one of those really quiet puppies. She was unusually quiet. 
um, unusually calm, didn't destroy anything, hardly barked. And when she went out of the house, she would kind of pancake on the, on the ground and not mm-hmm. want to move. Uh, and then when dogs approached her, she would turn into kind of a Tasmanian devil. Uh, and that was her behavior MO outside the house. Inside the house, mm-hmm. she was, although pretty low key for a puppy, uh, she was much, you know, relaxed and happy and everything. But my newer dog uh, that I adopted about close to four years ago now, Tucker, uh, he is definitely the stereotypical quick to frustration, um, just, you know, a high, high energy kind of guy. And, but he came from very uh, um, averse training strategies in his background as well. So when he came to me, for him, getting the answer wrong always has this bubbling over tinge of, of I, I think, I mean, I can't, I don't like to read too much into it, but when you've been punished a lot, the wrong answers have consequences. And so when I see him bubbling over with frustration, it's, uh, I, I relate it to this, that his learning history actually taught him to be incredibly rigid, that there's only one right way to do it. And so asking him to think and, and be more creative and be more um, voluntary is a challenge. I have to be real careful how I set things up for him so that he, he doesn't have that feeling of, oh, my God, I'm going to get it wrong. Because I think in the back, you know, after three years of pretty heavy punishment, that doesn't go away. It's really hard. So I really noticed with him, anytime I look real trainery, you know, like standing straight with my tree pouch on, and if I say, like, sit, you know, if I even get that trainery, he starts to just go, whoa. And so with him, I have to be real sly. I do a lot of training sitting on the ground. I changed all the cues to silly cues like park it and settle. And, and I keep that tone so that uh, he doesn't have these moments of intense uh, training flashbacks. So, so I don't know if that, but he's the, but, but my, my little brown puppy, her way of dealing with confusion would be to just go quit. So was it you? Was it your experiences with your own dogs that made you kind of go down this path of thinking a lot more deeply about this concept of choice in dog training? Well, absolutely. Um, So one of the big turning points for my my puppy, Zoe, who's now, she's now 15, um, she... She and I really had a big breakthrough when I adopted Leslie McDivitt's Give Me a Break game, which has a, a number of different forms now along, uh, these days. Agnieszka from Poland, she calls it Let Me Want It. Um, oh, is this in the, the Control Unleashed book? Yes, it is. Uh, and it's a uh. fantastic game because the idea is you basically let the dog have full access to the environment, although it helps if you kind of limit the environmental choices a little bit. So there, in, when you went back when I first started out, even with positive reinforcement, there was a lot of pressure on the dogs to stay completely focused all the time. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, and if the dog lost focus, if they wanted to look at something or sniff something, that was considered a bad thing, Right. Um, and even if you're not going to punish the dog for that, there, that residual old school thinking was get the dog back to you right away. Don't let them self-reinforce. 
So Leslie McDivitt was one of the ones I first read who just was said, oh, that's stupid. Um, why fight the environment like that? So basically, uh, you start the session letting the dog have access to the environment. And then when the dog is done, when they've gotten the information, they've sniffed, and they check in with you, you start reinforcing that, and then you release them back to the environment again. Eventually, a pattern happens where the dog goes, I've, I, I'm done now. Uh, let's play. And as soon as you get that voluntary uh, coming back to you, then you can ask for a few fun, simple behaviors, and then you release the dog back again. And the goal with a dog like Zoe, uh, I'll tell you an example, I could do one repetition per training session. That's how we started. If I did like, if I tried to get greedy and I did like three sits or something, she would start to fade. You could see it was her way of dealing with pressure. She would just check out. So I okay, could, so... Yeah. Just so to clarify, yes, go ahead. So to, just to clarify, you you go into a new environment. Yes. You allow the dog to explore the environment mm-hmm. for however long that takes, I assume. Yep. And then once the dog starts to offer you some engagement, then you ask it to do a few cues, mm-hmm. and then you release the dog to the environment again. Yes. And okay. it's a structured game. Uh, Leslie does recommend you start it out with like ring gates. So the environmental choices are a little bit limited. Hmm. If you okay. do it uh, in a new place, like on leash, you might uh-huh. pick like a 20 by 20 area and just let the dog check that area. Let them look hmm. and check. If you, I find if you just keep letting the dog wander and each time they go into a new space, they have to do it again. So hmm. it's hard to do this so- on a walk, for example. Yeah, so like what what is the outcome here? What's the goal that we've got in mind with this game? Is it to try and get engagement in new environments? Like I'm a little bit lost with it. Ah, well, the goal <laughs> the goal is that you don't you you basically assume that a dog will choose to work with you once they have acclimated and are comfortable mm-hmm. with the environment that they're in. Okay. And the idea is to get out of that mindset of it is your job to keep your dog's full focus on you uh-huh. every second of the time. Okay. And then when what we've noticed, and this Leslie started this, but we've really have expanded this idea in many aspects, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the next hour of husbandry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really want to go deep on it. But the, uh, the idea of the dog being able to come back to you and engage freely without any nagging. So you don't call them, you don't jiggle the leash, you don't put a treat on their nose. You basically wait quietly. And I swear to you, in my brain, this is what helped me with Zoe. I told myself, I said, I don't care if you never look at me again. I mean, I literally had to let go of this idea of what a perfect dog had to be. It was almost like Zen. I called it Zen for people. You know that mm. in order to get the thing you want, you have to give up the thing you want. <laughs> so, yeah, that's interesting. so I switch it around for myself. I go, I wanted her focus. I wanted to okay. engage with her. Yes. Uh-huh. I wanted that. Uh-huh. But if she wasn't going to give it freely, uh-huh. then the behaviors that I was going to get were going to be lackluster. They were going to be okay. slow. And she was okay, going to check I, out anyway. 
Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm starting to follow you now because this relates to, um, like, I love engagement training, especially Uh with pet dogs, and that's a lot of what I do. Uh So, um, for example, one of the first things I'll often tell people, if they have a dog that's really unengaged, right, if it's had a long history of going on walks and just completely ignoring the owner, Mm -hmm. is for, say, the first week when you've got your dog on a long line, just reward every single instance of check-ins yes that's a good way to right? do it mm-hmm. so i i don't or it would i rarely advise that someone prompts the check-in mm-hmm. because i feel like if you add in a prompt then that's going to take you longer to fade it away right and it, it, you have to be conscious of the fact do you know what i mean if mm-hmm. you use a prompt then there's a danger of becoming reliant on it especially with pet owners so we just reward every instance of a check-in on a walk for the first week. Mm-hmm. And usually by the end of the first week, you have a very different dog. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that sounds like a similar game to what you're playing. Yes. Um, do you also follow yeah. it with a release back? What do you mean by a release back? Well, that's the... Now, the ultimate goal with the uh-huh. give me a break game... Uh-huh. And remember, Leslie McDivitt was working with competition dogs, right? So yes. the ultimate goal is the dog could sustain focus for the period of time they needed to do mm-hmm. the, the agility or the obedience or whatever. Hmm. So it's a little different. But with a pet dog, you can absolutely capturing eye contact is the perfect starting place. It's low pressure and it's perfect. But you often get a pattern of dog checks in, gets treat dog checks out quickly. They just kind of do a little loop of that. Um, mm-hmm. And once you add a, if you can add a release cue, we have to teach it. Then the way it would work is dog would check in, dog would expect to stay with you for a little bit longer, and then a clear a clear a clear cue that says now you can go back and sniff again. Mm-hmm. And now you have almost um, the pre mac principle kind of put on cue. Hmm. Not every pet dog owner needs that, but it's a Uh great tool to have in your, in your repertoire for that time when um, you don't have any treats or something and you want to use sniffing as an environmental reward or something like that. So the instance that I would do that, for example, is Mm -hmm. a little bit further along in the training. What we end up doing is teaching the dog that um, common distractions are a cue for you to check in. Right. So, for example, if you see another dog out on a walk, that's your cue to look back at me. Right. And right. then this, what that does is that gives the owner the ability to make the decision about whether their dog approaches the other dog, whether they come back to them and they go back on the lead. Mm-hmm. It just gives the person more control over the situation. Yeah. Um, so in that instance, then we can use pre-Mac quite effectively. Because what we can do is we can get the check-in. And then if it's a dog that we know that our dog can approach then we can use a release cue for the dog, go on then or whatever you want to use. Perfect. And the dog can go and go and say hello. Exactly. So it's the same concept applied uh, practically. What I like about Leslie McDivitt's version um, is it's structured. So what I liked was it, and I do this all the time, is anytime you need a skill for real life, it's hard to learn it in real life. So it's really hard to do it well when you're on a walk and you're really excited the dog's really excited there's a dog there i'm really excited Mm -hmm. oh my gosh what am i and then they kind of make about five errors and then they finally get the eye contact you know if you're so what i like about her game is it's like good training right you limit things a little bit more until the cues and the patterns are really clear 
And then you expand. What Leslie will do is start taking down the ring gates and adding distractions around the same structure. It's really it's kind of it's kind of like working with a reactive dog, where distance becomes extremely important. Yes, yes. Right, like if your dog is too close that it's um, not able to check in, Mm -hmm. then just like you would with a dog that's reacting, then you need to give yourself more distance, or at least that's been my experience. But I feel like we're going off topic because (laughs) we originally (laughs) were going to talk about choice, and now we're on kind of engagement and checking in and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's part and parcel. Like I say, this, uh, this idea of choice is sort of like an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. We could come at it from all different angles. There's the engagement angle. And I think it's good to focus on the simple, practical parts of it. So anytime a dog voluntarily looks at you or checks in with you, that whole concept of voluntary behavior, um, something that you're not prompting or forcing we are at the base level of choice right there. And that's the core of positive reinforcement training, right? And that's the definition of operant learning um, mm-hmm. is the dog could keep staring at a dog or the dog could look at you. There are options there, right? Um, so that's the basic part of it. But, but we could also look at, you know, many different levels of choice, and a lot of there's a lot of people that kind of question the idea of choice. Like if we have all these reinforcers, is that really a choice, right? We're still influencing behavior all the time. I mean, often it if you think of the the food that you have or the training environment that you set up, if you think of all those as cues and the dog says, "Oh, you're you're wearing your treat pouch." that is a cue for this offered behavior. It becomes interesting uh, to think about, is that really a choice? It's on the cue of the food. If you didn't have the food on you, would the dog still do that? Yes, most dogs would, some dogs wouldn't. Um, So you really wanna look at the relationship between cues and reinforcers and behavior. to kind of pull apart which part of it is actually voluntary and which part of it is just a response to a cue. Is that making sense? Uh, yeah, it does make sense. I'm a little bit, I must admit, like the reason I wanted to talk about choice mm-hmm. is because I've been mulling it over a lot in my own head and I feel a little bit confused about it myself okay. because there are us, <laughs> let me just ask you the question, sir. <laughs> oh That's a good way to go. <laughs> So there are some instances, right, mm-hmm. where choice makes complete and utter sense to me, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, with the husbandry training yeah. or anything that involves any kind of um, counter conditioning, having a clear opt out signal just makes the whole process easier from my experience mm-hmm. because we d- we're not guessing at the dog's body language. The dog can literally just tell us, hey, look, this is too much for me. Mm-hmm. So, And then we can basically perfectly make sure that we're exposing the dog to the right amount or or whatever of the um, scary stimulus. So that makes complete and utter sense to me. Mm -hmm. But then I see a lot of stuff on Facebook because this like concept of choice has become such a popular like word at the moment where people seem to be adding in choice where it makes no sense to me to add in choice because at some level 
we're dog trainers and we have to manipulate behavior. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I... so can you give me an example of a situation that was confusing for you? Um, that you that you saw something and you went, that seems really confusing. Uh, I'm confused a lot of the time when I see people doing shaping sessions where they deliberately have some other kind of comparable reward on offer. And it's kind of under this label of choice. To me, it just seems like proofing. Is this making sense to you? So an example would be you would put uh, a bowl of kibble on the on the training floor, you would work with your dog and the dog is has free access to the same reward to to the exact same reward, Uh but they choose to do the work instead. Right. I don't see how that's to any advantage. That is when, okay. I understand why people are doing that. That is to get to kind of, to address what I was just sort of bringing up in a slightly unclear fashion is (laughs) There is a question. It's, uh, the people who are doing that are, are asking a very important question, which is when I have total control over all the reinforcement, right? And mm-hmm. the dog has to do the behavior in order to get this reinforcement. And do you hear how I'm phrasing that? Uh-huh. There is a question about whether or not that's a choice. If the, uh-huh. Let's say the dog's really hungry, and the mm-hmm. only way to get this treat out of my pocket is to sit. Right. Right. Now, he could choose not to sit. He could choose to walk away. He could do, and a lot of people say that he could have walked away anytime. Mm-hmm. True, because a voluntary behavior means he could, right? But the, 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 the trainers that are experimenting with that idea of if I put out the, the, an equal amount of reinforcement and the dog could just eat it, or the dog could come and work with me, that's a real choice because I'm no longer controlling the, re- the reinforcer. The dog can say, I want to do the behavior. I actually want to do the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I've seen this done beautifully with horses with the idea of like you walk them into a field of grass mm-hmm. and the entire field is food. In fact, Penny Hogan has a great one. Uh, she's like, you know, when the, when, the, when, the, when the ground is food and you want that horse's attention, the mm. horse could completely just keep grazing. Uh-huh. Right? See, to me, I understand why it's impressive, um, like any feat of proofing. I just don't understand why. I just don't understand why. You know, like what is the advantage? Well, if, if you think of it as proofing, then you're going to want the dog not to take the food on the ground, right? <laughs> and if okay, you think of it as proofing, uh-huh. then you're going to set up, and that would be good, you know, if you do it well, you're going to do it in an errorless way, and you're going to still make it so that dog is going to always choose to sit for you because mm-hmm. they've learned that's the only way to really get the reinforcer. Um, hmm. If people are really doing this idea... So the give me a break game for, just think of a horse again. The way it would work is you would walk out to the field. um, You would have some good food in your pouch. You would release the horse to eat. Mm -hmm. And they'd start grazing. Uh And then you might do that thing where you start capturing 
them for looking at you, feed them a little grain, let yeah, them go yeah, back yeah, to, sure. right? Uh -huh. So eventually the horse can go, I would choose to eat grass. Uh -huh. Or the horse could go, you know, it's more interesting and fun to do this little game with you. Yes. Okay. But you're not, uh, you're not creating a scarcity of resources uh -huh. in that moment. So I think that would actually uh -huh. be closer to a real choice. Yeah, yeah. I understand that, that Sarah. Yeah. What I don't understand is why, like, the cl closest um, or most true choice is like what we're shooting for? Well, I think good positive reinforcement trainers, and I will tell you honestly, I don't put out food on the ground mm -hmm. and expect my dogs to ign ignore it. Or honestly, my dogs would eat all the food on the ground and then they would come to me and go, now let's play and have more food. Like, <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of, uh -huh. you know, I would expect that of them. Unless I specifically set it up as a Zen exercise or a release to uh -huh. the, um, so, so I personally don't do it, but I respect the yeah. people that are asking this question. Uh -huh. It's an important one. Um, mm. especially, uh, Sarah, if you ever look up a really, really good blog, um, by Sarah Streming, she has a blog on the idea of, for example, if we need really, really high value reinforcers kind of like life and death like some you know how dogs feel about toys sometimes they mm -hmm. will crawl across glass some dogs to get uh -huh. Uh -huh. a toy like a, a real life and death reinforcer and right. we're okay. using that reinforcement to get them to do something they probably wouldn't have wanted to do mm -hmm. right is that a choice like i think that's a fair and ethical question to ask as positive mm -hmm. reinforcement trainers However, for the day-to-day -day stuff, I think the simplest way to answer this question is make sure all your dog's needs are met so they're not mm -hmm. coming to the session starving, mm -hmm. right? Uh -huh. Make sure that the things you're asking the dog to do are fair and with it, mm -hmm. you know, and always watch for that sign of conflict of the dog mm -hmm. is, I want that food, but I'm not comfortable with what you're asking me to do. If you do those three things, I think you're fine. I love those three things, Sarah. Yeah. Like I'm totally on board with those three things. Right. Um, like I just sometimes feel like people are like what you, how you framed it then. And tell me if I'm saying this mm -hmm. right. It seems to me like people are trying to answer a philosophical question mm -hmm. as opposed to, maybe practically trained dogs it's more about answering um is my dog working with me because they enjoy working with me right would you agree with that i think i think it might just go towards that i think it's a reasonable thing to test because um again we say that we're uh we're training without coercion right and so I think it's a reasonable thing occasionally to test, to go, are we really training without coercion or are we really manipulating behavior because I have all the reinforcers and you have to do, I, you have to yeah. do what I say, right? I think on some level yeah. we are manipulating behavior. I think we, like, yeah, I think we are. Well, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I think it's as easy as simple as that. Like that, we're in the business of manipulating behavior, right. which is why I find right. the whole concept of choice mm -hmm. 
um, where there isn't an obvious practical benefit, which is right. how I'm viewing right. it from, right. as as confusing. And that's where I'm getting confused right. about it. But right. I see what you're saying now. Right. Um, but when when like I see these discussions on Facebook and social media mm -hmm. and people keep talking about choice, sometimes I, I'm like looking for the practical benefit and I can't find it. Right. And well, in it may not be it may not be necessarily practical. That's why I gave you those three things that I do. So if, if but those were yeah, practical. Those, those are those practical. Were like, well, I'm a very yes. I'm actually a very practical trainer. I like to think all the big things. Uh, right. <laughs> but when I get a dog in front of me, it's very practical. Uh, it's yes. very in the moment. So, for example, uh -huh. I have worked with dogs that either due to dietary restrictions or health issues are ravenous. I mean, they're almost dangerous. They're so hungry. I've had one dog that the moment you stop giving food in a session, she will attack you. As long as you're feeding her, she looks beautiful and she's great. And then as soon as you like put the close the pouch and look at the, at the owner to talk, she'll launch at you. I've worked with dogs so desperate for food that often a better starting place for those dogs was not training them at all. No contingency. It was better to just like put food out and let them eat and calm down and just relax. So, uh, you know, and then once they've eaten enough and they felt satiated a little bit, they were able to offer quiet eye contact for a few sessions mm -hmm. without that craziness. So, um, again, I think what's really important is that to also keep in mind with this idea of choice mm -hmm. is that the brain is hardwired to, to work for contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. To, I do a behavior, I get what I want. So there's nothing necessarily evil about that. Right. Right. I agree. Because uh -huh. that's what we're going to be doing. If you let a dog go out into the, into the world, they're going to dig for gophers. That requires a lot of effort, right? They're going to search for trash. So they're not going to just immediately get food right on, you know what I mean? So the, the, the brain is hardwired to, to work this way. So mm -hmm. when you keep everything healthy in a healthy parameter, um, I think it's perfectly fine to say I have all the reinforcers. It's, isn't it fun to figure out how to get those out of my pouch? Isn't that great fun yeah, for you? Definitely. So uh -huh. I don't, I don't worry about it too much, but I, like I said, I have encountered animals and I know there are some trainers that deliberately starve their animals of attention or food or, you know, or, you know, the bird trainers that get the weight of the bird down really low. So the dog, the birds won't fly away, right? They yeah, want to do great. free flight. And then they uh -huh. can't because they're actually kind of starving. So uh -huh. I think this, this response is to that. It's like, let's make sure that we're being ethical. And I'm, I'm perfectly for that. But I agree with you. It's not necessarily the most practical way. And it can be confusing. Like the dog right. is like, whoa, you know, let's just keep this simple for me. I do this thing and then you pay me. Like, yeah. right? So Sometimes it feels like... Um, people make it unnecessarily difficult like to, in order to kind of make that point the dog is making a free choice right. and you're right like there have been historically well even now like today there are people that um, you know weigh the balance so much in their favor that we might feel that it's 
ethically questionable, right? To starve your animal of attention or food um, in order to get better results. So I can see why people have now, as a countermeasure to that, kind of swung the other way and said, we need like choice in dog training, which we absolutely do. I think where it practically benefits us or where we're trying to ask, answer a philosophical question. Right. Um, I get a little bit lost sometimes when people seem to be adding in choice to add in choice. Right. (laughs) Right. But I think, I think the idea of always being aware of that and also just, there's also a lot of the environment is filled with things that the animals might prefer in that moment than our silly little treats in our, right? So often I'm, I'm, I'm very humble. I'm like, you would rather think about that squirrel right now? Okay, let's think about that squirrel for a while. And then mm-hmm. when you're done, would you like to play with me again? Um, so I'm never one of those trainers. Again, I, I've really evolved. Many of us have evolved out of that mindset of the dog must ignore everything in the world but me at all times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, I really let go of that quite a bit. So um so definitely when I'm in a session uh, with one of my dogs, and I've been doing a lot of husbandry lately. Now, husbandry is a good place to talk about choice. Definitely. I wanted to get to this. Certainly because the things that we're going to be, uh, what we're working towards, there's no way around it. It's going to be aversive, right? At a certain point, mm-hmm. I'm going to stick a needle in my dog's neck. Hopefully I do it well and they only feel a, a, pick, a pinprick of pain. If I do it badly, it actually hurts. Um, so there's no way around it. And I, I, you know, nail dremels, I can, my dogs are great with it, but I really, I couldn't, if I gave them the option, the full option to not participate, I can't, I just think they wouldn't do it. Like, mm-hmm. so, so they come, they lay down, they're not restrained. I, that's one big step forward is we don't, we don't string our dogs up on grooming tables uh, so they can't move. So if they can move freely, that's a good step forward in choice. Um, if you gradually work things in, uh, that's another way to work in choice rather than just grab their foot, right? Um, I'm just showing practical ways. And then you can go all the way up to a start button behavior where the dog offers a behavior like a chin rest and then the nail grinder touches the toe. And that, I love that because when you get to that level, you know how reinforcement works, right? So the dog could be, if you offer the chin and the next thing that happens is too aversive, you will have punished your chin rest. And the next time you ask for that chin rest, it won't ha- it will be slower, right? They'll be hesitant. So you have a nice read on how aversive that that the next piece is. If it's too, see, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, see, um, husbandry training, I feel like, is where choice, like, really comes into its own. Like, this is where choice is, like, badass. <laughs> it is. So it is. But just we've think, done about, a... but think about, I got to do one last thing, though. This is the dilemma for me. As an operant trainer, right? And I, when you think like an op, you know, I'm looking for clear criteria, correct behavior. So the dog does the chin rest correctly, holds for duration, 
I touch the nail, click treat, right? So what do you do when the dog goes, "Uh uh-uh, not touching the, not doing it? Mm -hmm. As a trainer, I wouldn't feed it Mm -hmm. because it's not correct, right? So Uh it gets us back to that old dilemma. If the dog says no, and we're not sure exactly, is it a no or is it a just a, we're not sure what that is, but we're calling it a no. I have started to feed those. Ah, now you've taken this on a... Yes. <laughs> you've t- okay, all right, this is interesting yes. now. Um, because, I'm, because I don't, like, same thing. I don't, I'm trying to get to that place where I want to be sure if he offers that chin rest, okay. it's not just because he has to do it to get the food. All right. See, Sarah, we were we were going so well. Oh, now I can see you again. <laughs> I I I was on the same wavelength as you, and now you've just oh. now you've thrown in a. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm confused now because, like you said yourself, mm-hmm. like all of our dog training has always been about manipulating behavior. Yes, I know. All right, and now or even more like when i was learning how to dog train it was always um you should know what the criteria is for your dog to win a reward yes right like yes. i was always taught that me too and now you're telling me to abandon it so <laughs> well no not not for like anytime you're training something you should be clear with your criteria and not confuse your dog okay, okay so so don't this is just for husbandry Okay, so if you're teaching another type of behavior and your dog does not meet criteria, please don't pay it because that's not fair. That's a yes, that's a right. mis- I, I should have been clear. Yeah, but I want to be clear for okay. our listeners, right? Okay, okay. I'm not saying reinforce everything, although you know there's uh-huh. gray areas in all training. But in this, <laughs> that's not good. In this, in this one <laughs> thing, for example, my dog knows. Uh, I'm doing right now, he's recovering from TPLO surgery. I have to do these range of motion exercises. Okay. So I have to bend the knee and try and get more flexibility in the knee. Now, I set this whole thing up where he puts his chin on a towel that tells me when he's ready. I will, uh, I do, I work real slowly with my husbandry. So I show him my hands. He knows exactly the pattern. He touches shoulders. I slide my hands all this time. If he starts to move away from my hands, I stop immediately. Or if he lifts his head. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, I would not pay. That's what I've always done. Right? I, I would, don't pay that. I would not pay. I would be, that would be a wrong, right? Because he's not meeting uh-huh. criteria. But now I will pay it. Then I go back five steps in my plan. And I rebuild the stability that I wanted again. So okay. I don't allow a mistake to be paid twice in a row. Okay. It's not a mistake, uh-huh. really. But I want him to say no uh-huh. if he is actually uncomfortable. Now, this is the okay. tricky part. You have to know the difference between a dog that is saying, no, I don't want you to do the bending of the leg right now because it's uncomfortable versus a dog that doesn't understand your criteria and he's just, he's just kind of confused. Hmm. Do you see the difference? Um, 
I I can understand what you're saying when you train. Okay, there's a lot to go through there. I can understand <laughs> what you're saying when you train a dog and you kind of get a feeling like this. This is terrible dog training, <laughs> but when you get a feeling as to what they're thinking, I know. I know. My the my uh, difficulty there is. Um, that's so wishy-washy, isn't it? Like, we're relying on people to guess what the dog is thinking. Right. And their motivations for doing something. Right. Which you might feel like you can do relatively reliably. Um, but that... Well, here's Like, here's as, an a, example. as a pet dog trainer. Yeah, a pet dog like, I think you should keep it much simpler for pet dog owners, to be honest. With a, For a pet dog owner, if you want to make this simple, I would... If you're teaching a bucket game, for example... I would say pay for every repetition. Keep it simple, no matter what the dog does. If you get one no, you automatically go back to a place that the dog was able to say yes really, really easily and get correct. So every time you get a no, you have to get at least five to ten good, solid ones afterwards. If you have that as a rule of thumb, I think you're fine. Right? Does that make sense? Right. So, okay. But um, you, go ahead. You ask your question. Okay. So, well, there's a few things there. It seems like what you're relying on there, then, in order to keep continually push your criteria, is reinforcement history. Yes. As opposed to reinforcing discriminately based on criteria. Yes. Wow. Very well put. <laughs> yes. Um, that's exactly so, it. Okay. So. Um, Which is what drives behavior anyway, is reinforcement history. Yeah. Okay, what what do you think is the advantage of doing it this way? It takes... Now, let's say it's a teeny little wibble-wobble of criteria. You haven't even done anything very invasive yet. Just wibble-wobbly. You might just not pay that one, Right. But let's say you've done, this is, this is when I would do it. Let's say I've done five really good ones. I've gotten five good bend knee stretches. He's done them perfectly. And on number six, he goes, eh, I, this is, maybe it's hurting. I don't know. Maybe it's hurting a little bit now. Maybe he's tired of standing there. I, I don't know. I can't think, I don't know what's in his brain. But he's done five really good ones. So I, he knows exactly what's coming. He knows what the criteria is. He's been paid for it, right? Why would he? Why would he say no? Why would he go? Eh, not. Uh, I've had a, not this one. So I could just. I could choose. I could just not pay. Take a break. Taking a break is also a reinforcer. That's. It's a little negative reinforcement, but it's like, hey, you're getting fussy. Let's go walk around. Let's move away from this area. Those are. That's a reinforcer as well. I guess that depends on the individual and the training and all that kind of thing as well. Yes. But husbandry always, almost always, we, we try to, we try to avoid it, but there's always a little level of negative reinforcement at play. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like you should always acknowledge it. It's always there. Uh, so, so the second you so stop do you... doing anything intrusive, uh-huh. it, it, it's also a, a moment of, whew, good. Okay. Okay. So do you feel like the advantage of rewarding even when the dog doesn't um, um, consent to the exercise, mm-hmm. 
do you feel like the advantage there is maybe you're taking some conflict out of the dog's decision? That's the goal. Okay. But you want to keep a sharp eye on it. So, for example, so for example, let's say the next session he does it three times and then it gets five and it increases. I need to look carefully. Is it because he's not understanding the criteria? Is it because I was unclear and I paid for that? And he's thinking it becomes real obvious, though, because they start to do their non-behavior like a real trained trick. They go, chin rest, ta-da, where's my treat? I mean, you start uh-huh. to see this sort of pattern, and that uh-huh. makes you suspect, suspect that it, you've accidentally just been unclear. Uh-huh. Right? Okay. But like I said, when I get five or six really good solid ones, and then I get a wobbly one, mm-hmm. I usually pay it, take a break, then I go back a few steps, mm-hmm. reiterate how the game works. Another way to look at it is this. You can focus, when it comes to husbandry, you can focus on the emotional response first, or you can focus on the operant response. And this is another whole can of worms. The operant response would be the perfect chin rest, the duration, that the body is perfectly still, everything is lined up. Click. Okay, that's operant. Emotional response would be he comes in, his tail's wagging, he's happy to be there, he sees the tools on the table, he doesn't shy away from them, his face looks bright, he looks at me like, oh boy, are we going to get lots of treats here? He might be a little sloppy and wishy-washy, but if I just feed him, he still feels good about that whole setup. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so I want to skip back a little bit. Yeah. So with the um okay, so if we're if we're rewarding every repetition now mm-hmm. um in an attempt to um avoid conflict in the dog's decision, right? So the dog doesn't just feel like I'm just going to put up with it because I want the treat. Yes, right? exactly. So if we're doing that, okay, cuz I think there's more questions to ask there, isn't there? Always. So like it, um because this kind of relates a little bit to overshadowing, doesn't it? Like, let me share a story. So okay. when we did husbandry training with our dog, we don't, we've never rewarded every repetition. We we don't reward if the dog says no, mm-hmm. uh, we just let go or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if we use something of very high value, then he will let you do just about everything. <laughs> okay. You know, if we, okay. if we use sausage, then you could cut his ear off and he would be perfectly <laughs> content. Which is something to so, look at. Yep, yep. So with at. him, we have to deliberately lower the value of the reward so that he doesn't... So that he's operant, as you put it, right? So that he's actually thinking about what's going on and he isn't just like, do anything, I just really want the sausage. Okay. Right? It's if... If you're trying to avoid conflict in the dog, um, there seem like there's more factors than just rewarding every time. Would you say that? Like the value of your reward is going to be one of those factors. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that uh, goes back to that um, idea from Sarah Stremming is really look at, I mean, the way you phrase that, you know, he would let us cut his ear off for a sausage uh, that is that ethical, right? If he's that desperate for a sausage, you know, that's a very powerful thing. You, that means you have all the power there. 
right? And yeah, so, and, so and that's just... really good that you think about that. Like, but mm. let's say let's say you had to get something done, right? That was just really going to be hard for him. Wasn't really trained for it yet, and you just mm. wanted it to be as pleasant or an experience as possible. Or maybe you just wanted him distracted enough that you're not going to do damage, right? So you just put yeah. a sausage on his nose. You have to be real careful when you do it this way, sausage on his nose and get it done. Uh, if you do it in that order and the thing is really aversive, he might hate sausages later. But, but a lot of the fear-free veterinarians are recommending that distraction technique for dogs that are like not trained yet. Deliberate overshadowing. Deliberate overshadowing. So uh-huh. that you, you, again, you have to be really careful because uh, I've met a lot of dogs, you get out those high-value foods and they run and hide. Because mm-hmm. they're like, I know what that smell means. That mm. means you're going to... So yeah, if, so, if, yeah, go ahead. If this is an attempt to avoid conflict in the dog's decision, is that a problem that you encountered a lot when you were not rewarding every repetition? Uh, good question. I am just thinking, that's where the pause is. Um, no, I like silence because it. I do the same thing yeah. when someone has said something that I to think about makes it. me think. I have to go. Silent, These are wonderful which... questions. I hope I'm not just confusing everyone completely. Um, when I look at my videos of my dog's progression uh, with all this husbandry I've been doing, especially lately, and this is the high energy dog, the one with a ton of aversive training in his background. Um, you know, uh, and I would consider him, he came to me with some pretty intense trust issues with people touching him, restraining him. Um, so everything I do with him is super, super careful. And mm-hmm. everything I do with him involves an out, right? He's always, mm-hmm. I always make sure that he, he feels like he's in charge of what we're doing. Um, I would say that... I don't think I saw a huge difference between uh, not reinforcing and reinforcing. To be perfectly honest with you. I'm glad that um, you're you're really honest about that because, like, in theory, it makes sense. Right. Okay, it makes makes sense that um, the dog could become conflicted more if we're not rewarding every repetition. Um, But by rewarding every repetition, we are accepting a level of risk that the dog is going to... Um, accidentally being reinforced for the wrong thing um, or something that right. is is going to be reinforced for maybe um, choosing to move away not out of overwhelming but out of just trying it, you know? Yeah. Like you said that yourself where you're guessing the dog's motivation. Right. But I will tell you that I am religious about doing easy repetitions like Uh that, that point that you brought up about it's about reinforcement history. Mm -hmm. That is where that is my wheelhouse. So that could be why it's not making a huge difference either way, because Mm. I only get one of these little wobbles like once in a great while. Most of what I get is the solid behavior that I want. I want to come back to that. for sure. Right. And so, and the reason that's happening is not because he's complying. The uh-huh. reason that's happening is because I'm splitting. 
Mm. I'm splitting, 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 splitting. So we'll do an intrusive one. Then we do five easy ones that are just easy to get the right answer. Then we take a break before Mm. he quits on me. If I'm doing a good job, uh, I know this dog and he doesn't even enjoy standing still for longer than five reps. That's not Mm. his thing. So if I'm smart, I'll do four reps and then we go do a play break. And then Uh we come back. If I'm having a lazy day or a spaced out day, I'll try for eight reps or 10 reps. And that's when I get Mm. my wobbles. So Mm. either I just pause and let him reset himself, which is kind of like not paying, right? Or sometimes he gives me a real clear, I feel really done. And I'll just do something that I want him to feel happy about. And then we take a break and then I go back and start splitting again. (laughs) That makes sense. So it's the Uh momentum. It's the momentum of all that back history that is making it work. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because I, so I have done a bit of husbandry training in, in the same way without reinforcing every repetition. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had that issue either. I've only had that issue where I've used two reinforcing food. So now from my own kind of reflection on this, now I have to make a decision as to whether um, I try to fix a problem I'm not having, right? Right. Just honestly. And take a risk um, that I'm going to reinforce something that I don't want or I just continue down the path I'm already on. Right. And you want to think about what is your goal? So, for example, on a... On a counter conditioning, right, we apply a stimulus and then it's followed by something the dog likes, right? So when I do these uh, exercises, I'm also, I've already applied the stimulus. I put my hands on him, he wiggled. So do, am I, if I'm doing counter conditioning, I should pay, right? If I'm doing operant, I should not pay. So do you mm-hmm. see the difference? So, I've still, if I want him to associate my hands reaching for him on him to mean a good thing is about to happen, Mm -hmm. if that's my goal, and I think trainers should make a decision in their mind, what is the goal? I've seen Mm -hmm. trainers err on the side of being so strict with their criteria uh, that they, and they haven't focused on the, the, the classical, the operant or the counter conditioning side of it enough. So the dogs will come in hesitantly with their ears flat and the trainer waits and waits for this perfect behavior. And the dog is already going, I know as soon as I punch my nose on this thing, you're going to put eardrops in my ear. You can just see Uh the dog just cringing. like. And the trainer is trying to be a good trainer, not a harsh. They're trying to be good and stick with their criteria. And it would have been much better for that dog if you just said, hey, dog, come over here. I'm going to feed you every time you look at this thing. Hmm. That would have been a better place to start. That's also an example of maybe someone that's not splitting fine enough. Yes. And I think that's why if you split well, and you also, what I like to split out are the context cues, which is the equipment, the gestural cues, which is how you're going to reach for the animal. And then the actual tactile cues, which is what you're going to touch the animal with. I split all of those out. So there are times when I'm really focusing on that pattern and I just want it to be a pattern. My hands are going to touch you. I'm going to say good and then food is going to happen right here. And Mm -hmm. I sometimes relax what I want the dog to do. And I Mm -hmm. find when the dog locks into the pattern, when I want to just insert a chin rest, 
it becomes super easy. So I don't know if that answers well, your question. Well, one thing you mentioned that I really wanted to come back mm -hmm. to because it's something that I've recently started experimenting with and have had like really good results mm -hmm. with is this idea of behavioral momentum. Yes. Right. I love this. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I love this as well. So like this idea of, because beforehand, before um, I kind of like heard about this and I started experimenting with it, I was always very strict with the criteria in terms of like progressively upping it. Mm -hmm. And I never would come down provided the dog was meeting criteria. Right. You know, I would just continue to, to up criteria until I got to where I wanted. But recently I started experimenting with, um, like say we were teaching a stay, mm -hmm. instead of going one second, two second, three second, four second, and so on. Sometimes I might ask for four seconds. Sometimes I'll ask for one. Sometimes I'll ask for two. And then maybe I'll push up to five. So the dog has got this reinforcement history and I'm not always asking them to go to their, the extent of w what's possible for them. Yes. And what I find is, although like it's kind of counterintuitive because you would think, okay, that might take me longer to get where I want. But like, I find it doesn't like I think it actually speeds things up mm -hmm. because you're keeping the rate of reinforcement higher and the dog's just building up that momentum I don't know it's just in my experience that's actually really helped in pushing criteria which kind of seems a bit counterintuitive at first yeah I call that um we call that bouncing a bounced criteria or sometimes I think of it as a stretched rubber band so you. So that's not what you would call momentum. No, actually, not quite. Although the, anything that anything that increases rate of reinforcement is going to create momentum. So okay. if you do these d down stays, right, where the dog has to sit there for three minutes, that's three minutes without reinforcement. You're you're going to actually lose momentum a little bit. But if you did, mm -hmm. like you just mentioned, a ten second stay, a thirty second stay, a one minute stay, you've you've created that rubber bandy cool. Uh, so what I call momentum or the, my understanding is when you, let's say you, you ask for a behavior and your dog doesn't do it. And then you ask for three or four easy ones, something else. Ah, so yes. like a sit, like, so you ask for something and they go and that just kind of has a brain fart. It doesn't happen. Uh -huh. And then you ask yeah, for yeah. three or four and they get those really fast. Boom, boom, boom. And then you ask for the one that they missed they often will just fall right in with this nice mm. latency. It's a beautiful way to uh, improve latency is to mm -hmm. kind of rapid fire uh, known behaviors. That's my understanding of momentum. However, um, this whole idea of repetitions repeated uh, at a rhythmic pace, I think also feeds this as well. Um, and that is part of splitting that's part of what splitting is all about. So uh, again, same thing. So instead of doing, if you look at my sessions, it's just like you mentioned, every time I do the full leg stretch, it's about 10 seconds without a reinforcer because I've got to do the whole thing and hold the leg and I have to count to 10 and put it down and then he gets a reinforcement. So if I split that up into sometimes I just touch his shoulders, gets a reinforcer. Sometimes I slide down the leg, get a reinforcer. Sometimes I lift the leg, get a reinforcer. And sometimes I do the whole thing and get a reinforcer. I do agree. I think that creates momentum and it makes the behavior more stable in the long run. Right? So absolutely. 
Yeah, so that's one kind of tip for people listening, like experiment with that because it was only relatively recently that I started doing that and I must say it made a massive difference. Yes. So yes. something to something to check out. To change the topic wildly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in thinking you were gonna launch your own podcast at some point? Well, I I'm one of those uh people that say what I'm going to do with great ambitions. Uh, and then I get really engrossed in my life. <laughs> so it's hard. I was funny. I was listening to your podcast with Ryan and you were talking about all these hardcore people that get up at 5am and you know, I am not one of those people. <laughs> I, I am so not one of those people. I am. My dogs get me up promptly at eight, which is early for me. Um, and I spent a good hour or two just with them. Uh, they get my full attention for the first couple hours of the day, which I'm very fortunate I can do this. Um, so I need to start being more disciplined. I, find, I just moved. Um, so I've, I had that. That was my excuse for not getting things done uh, was that I had to move into my house. Um, so I don't have that excuse anymore. And then I had an excuse that my dog had surgery. Anyway, so I would love to do a podcast. Um, I'm enjoying, I was on Ryan's, I was on Agnieszka's and with you, and all three experiences were so wonderful. So sometimes I wonder, what's the, why do we need another one? There are these great people already disseminating fantastic information. We don't need another one. So. Oh, no, I disagree with you there. <laughs> but it might happen in the next year if I get organized. I hope so, because I'm, I, ever since I heard you say that, I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, I think I'm just going to need a lot of encouragement. You know, Sarah Streming has a fantastic one. Hannah Brannigan uh -huh. has a fa fantastic one. Uh -huh. um, and many of these people well, are promoting exactly the ideas that I live and breathe every day. So, Well, whatever comes naturally to you, I guess, but like, I think that I definitely think you should get into content creation. Like I, I, I mean, you already do this to an extent on your own, your Facebook mm -hmm. page, don't you? Like you, you put post a lot of stuff that could easily be like on a blog. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if that was your, your motivation. Yep. Um, but I, I have to speak from my own perspective because I'm sure that there are people that you've worked with and you've known for a long time, but it was only relatively recently that I found, found out about you and like, I feel like you've, like, if you had to guess who's going to be, you know, the next, whatever, you know, the, the next big thing, then I think that you're, you're on the top five list, you know, oh. like, you seem like you're, uh, you're really um, ascending very quickly. And I can see why, like, you, the way that you talk about things is very, like, you know, I, that podcast I heard you on with Ryan initially, that was like mind blowing for me. Oh wow! <laughs> um, on impulse control, like I had to, you know, like I had to process that for like over a week and talk to people and like try to reassemble my brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that, and I think you do that for a lot of people. So I think you have a really important message that and a perspective that most people aren't talking about. So, yeah, I definitely think there'll be huge value in you creating some kind of content. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to put that in my folder of awesomeness and stick <laughs> it there. And every time I get funny, uh, funny about what I should do with myself, uh, it's hard to be ambitious in this business. Um, uh -huh. It's just hard. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I get to share thoughts at Clicker Expo. 
Um, John McGuigan had to tempt me with a trip to Scotland in order to get me over there. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Scotland, but um, it's just I feel hard. like John gets mentioned. Yeah. I feel like John gets mentioned on every episode of this podcast. I know. <laughs> he's not, he's not, talk about a rising star. He he is just the hardest working man in in dog training. He's just and he's putting out great content. Um, and he's connecting with people and he's an avid learner, you know, I mean, that's what really marks, I think the most brilliant people I find is that they're just avidly wanting more information and wanting to rethink. So, I mean, most of us, we look back, I just posted a whole bunch of things on release cues. And most of us are like, we look back in our videos from eight to 10 years ago and we're like, God, I think about this completely differently now because we're all just pushing the envelope of thinking and rethinking and uh well that's where i think you excel as well because it's not like most of us come into this with one like speciality Mm -hmm. right like if um like i post a lot about engagement with pet dogs Mm -hmm. like that's what i talk about Mm -hmm. a lot like there are people that have specialities whereas even when when we were trying to organize this podcast it's like we could do it on anything and it's going to be interesting (laughs) (laughs) like you have deep thoughts about release cues impulse control choice husbandry like we could there's so like i feel like you add a different perspective to every area that you're in so um yeah i think that's really special so i'm definitely looking forward to any content you produce in the future cool thank you but but for people that don't already follow you mm-hmm. or maybe this is their first exposure to you mm-hmm. where can they find out more about you well right now the most active public media thing i have is facebook and right now that's the easiest for me when i try to write blogs it takes me weeks and weeks to get any one of them out but when i make, when i make facebook posts for some reason i can manage them in a day um and i i frequently I'll have a thought for the day or a video I want to share or, um, and so it has a real nice immediacy to it, which is the things that I'm thinking about right now. Um, so it's a pretty rich thing. I mean, you'll, you'll get some pictures of my dinners and things like that, but, but most of it, <laughs> um, most of it is uh, pretty deep thoughts about dogs and husbandry, especially in, uh, my dog's recovery from uh, TPLO, which so many dogs are going through that, um, I want to make that information a little more available for sure because I'm on a couple of lists of people with pet dogs going through TPLO and it sounds like hell for them. Just utter hell. The recovery time, the confinement, the, the, you know, just, and I'm actually finding it to be, and I have, he's not an easy dog. My dog is not an easy dog to keep on rest and relaxation, but we're having the best time um, just ref kind of recalibrating our life together. Um, it's actually healthier for us than the real high arousal stuff that I was getting stuck doing with him. So I do really want to share that journey so that more people going through this kind of, if, if not tape TPLO, some kind of surgery. Um, that, so that's important. So I don't know, but yeah. So did you say that? Yeah. Did you say that was just on your profile? Yeah. So it's all under my uh, Facebook under Sarah Owings. Uh-huh. Um, you don't have a Facebook page? Or... I just have me. Is there a website? There's no website right now. Okay. The only uh, website I'm connected with is an online um, nose work clicker for clicker training. It's called CyberScent, 
Um, so uh, that's a that's just a, a website that we set up our online courses for uh, nose work geeks who are interested in clicker training. So yeah, we could have done a podcast about that as well. Yeah, we'll, I'm, we'll, we'll I, keep that on I've been meaning to sign up for that for ages. <laughs> we'll keep that on a back burner. But uh, but anyway, those are my two main places right now: Facebook. But I'm pretty sure next by next year I'll have a, a website. Hopefully, get my blog. One thing I could just go through is put just post what I put on Facebook onto the blog. Then I won't have to actually rewrite them. Um, I'm sure a lot of them could easily be converted into blog posts. Yeah, so I have different hashtags. The hashtag Tucker Recovers is a a good one to follow. Um, And then hashtag Thought for the Day is another good one. So those are two that you can use to kind of go back and find stuff that I've posted over the last few years. So that's the the best you can do right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay well that was brilliant uh-huh. thank you for coming on sarah oh my pleasure great questions and i love your journey it's it's delightful hey guys i hope you enjoyed that one that was honestly such a fun one for me so fun to get so deep on a topic. I love the podcast where we get the opportunity to do that. Couple of things before you go. Firstly, just a reminder, we're sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box is a really cool home-cooked dog food that is healthy, is fresh, and it's delivered to you. If you want to get a 75% discount on your first order, then go to butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. The other thing is... Instead of you trawling the internet looking for the links to find Sarah's information, I'm going to put that all in one place for you. Just go to nickbenger.com slash Sarah hyphen Owings. And if you want to help me out, then leave an iTunes review or a view on whatever website you're on um, or podcast app, I should say. And if you're not a member of the Facebook discussion group, then you're missing out. Just search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Put in an invitation or a request to join, however you say it. <laughs> it's a request to join. And then I can accept. And yeah, you can join us over there, get involved in the discussion, see when the new podcasts get released. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that one. See you guys. <laughs>